Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I'm here with one of my co-hosts, Alex. Hey, Justin. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Oh, good. I mean, sounds like there might be a little bit of uh, foreshadowing in this uh, greeting of yours. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have Noah with us. Uh, he is living a very busy life, um, but he will be on in the near future. That said, we do have a special guest. And in fact, this is part of our continuing series uh, with special guests that we bring on to talk about movies that have meant a lot to them, whether they're uh, they're just their favorite movie or one of their favorite movies, and talk about it and why it's meant so much to them. And we like to talk about them as well. So that's kind of what we've been doing lately. So we are very happy to have a special guest, Josh, with us. He is the co-host of the TV break with uh, Alex. He is also co-host of the Anniversary Brothers podcast. And he is a columnist. He writes the Couch Potato column for the Pop Break. So hello, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And and like I said to Bill, it's 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 an honor to talk to someone that I've been hearing on a podcast that I listen to on the on the regular. So um so it just it just it's nice to complete the trifecta, as I think I said off air. Um, with you. <laughs> you flatter us. <laughs> But uh, so we, I haven't really talked about the movie yet, though, of course, Alex alluded to it. We're going to be talking about the movie that you have chosen for us, Josh, which is It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and some of our listeners may have heard of it. A bit of a, a, bit of a, a known uh, commodity, I would say, to, to most people. Uh, I would say critically venerated, but, but even more so becoming a holiday classic uh, many years <laughs> after its initial premiere in 1946. Uh, and uh, this film, I think, is is one that really has stood the test of time for, for a lot of people. So I kind of wanted to start this discussion the way I usually do with our guests uh, and just hear from you, Josh. How did you first um, encounter this film and what has it meant to you over the years? Yeah, sure. I, I think like most people, I first encountered um, It's a Wonderful Life just on its um, annual broadcast on I forget which I think it's NBC or one of the the major networks every Christmas or the Christmas Eve um, and I remember it being something that would always be on when I was a kid and I would kind of go in and out and not really pay too much attention to it um, until I was about I want to say probably around 13 um, and that was I think the first time I really sat down and really got invested in it and just fell in love with it. And since then, it is a, uh, a tradition for me to watch it at least once a year, um, sometimes even more. Uh, sometimes it's not even around Christmas. I have it on uh, DVD, and I have probably watched it more than any other DVD I own. And it's just been a movie that I can always go to when I need to have um, some catharsis. It is, for me, the most wholesome and emotionally powerful movie or one of the most emotionally powerful movies that um i've seen and just because of how earnest it is i think the the thing that really stood out to me when i first had that um that kind of seminal experience of really appreciating it was that it was the first movie to 
uh, make me cry. Like, I don't remember any other movie making me cry. Not, you know, all those uh, movies with the animals dying in them to kind of get the cheap uh, tears. <laughs> uh, no, this was like, you know, true, like at the end, um, true tears. And just I every time I watch it, um, I find myself tearing up, um, if not full blown, like weeping. <laughs> uh, and now it's like, um, as soon as I turn it on, it's like, oh, gosh, I need a tissue already. Um, <laughs> So it's 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 one that has a, a real like emotional significance to me. And um, even though I've watched it, like I said, at least once a year for the last, oh gosh, like 15 years or so, um, it still holds up no matter how many times I've seen it. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm guessing the other question I'm curious to ask you is, has it been kind of like a family staple for, for you? Like, is it something that you remember experiencing with your with your family or? Yeah, so I would often kind of force my family to watch it with me. Not that they didn't want to watch it. Um, it's more that um, my my brother would be like, oh, just, "Didn't we just watch this?" And my, <laughs> and my my grandmother, who's probably seen it, you know, hundreds of times since it first came out, was like, oh, "We're watching that again." I was like, "Yes, we are. We're watching that again, and we will watch it again next year too." <laughs> I'm, and and for you, Alex, uh, what familiarity did you have with this film? So inexplicably, this is actually my first time watching this film all the way through. Okay, that's what uh, I thought. I know it's kind of crazy. No one can believe that that's true. But I, I feel like I, prior to watching it for this for this review, I had thought that I had seen like large chunks of it like on TV over the years. But I definitely only saw like the last five minutes of this movie like a half dozen times and had not seen any of it otherwise. <laughs> um, I have, however, seen about like 20 episodes of television that riff off of the structure of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> that is a very common trope that uh, that TV writers do, especially around the holidays. Um, but I've never actually seen this movie before outside of this. So, yeah, it was not part of a Christmas tradition for us. It was not. Um, anything that I really had the opportunity to watch. Uh, this is actually my second Frank Frank Capra movie as well. I've only ever seen um, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, that's the only other Capra that I've seen. So that was also very exciting to get to, to watch another one of his masterpieces. And I was just very surprised because I just didn't... I knew that this was kind of a, a bit of like a treacly uh, Christmas story uh, that has become a bit of an institution. And I just you know, we'll get into it, but I was, I was blown away by how much more to it there was than that. Mm. Yeah. It, it's funny you say that because I know this film at the time it was released kind of had that reputation of being incredibly sentimental. It was something the critics really pointed out. Um, it also didn't do well with audiences, which especially watching it again really surprises me. I can't quite make it out. I mean, there was some speculation at the time that maybe like because it had come out just after the war that maybe there wasn't this sense of nostalgia that that maybe Capra was was trying to go for or something like that. Um, but uh, but over the years, I think it really has been borne out. It really has, you know, become part of the uh, American film canon. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is probably I would say I saw it a couple times when I was younger. Felt like I couldn't really appreciate it the way that I do now. Um, and just like 
I have to say this viewing really did um, solidify for me why this is a classic. I think this is the most I've loved it. Um, I was, you know, you mentioned Josh about how like it was one of the first movies that made you cry. I think uh, this this time that I watched it, I think I cried more than any other time I had seen it, and like it was just, uh, yeah, that that catharsis that you mentioned is, is really is really apt. That was really my experience watching it this time, and and we can get into a few of the other reasons and why I think it really has. Um, it surprised me just how. Um, how relevant it is uh, to today and how watching it again really did feel like visiting with old friends. And I'm finding this to be a trend in a couple of movies that I've watched recently that I really thought were truly great. And this was one of them. So, so yeah, overall, you know, not just overall, just, I, I really do think this is a masterpiece. I think it's, uh, it's just the best version of the, of the story that it, that it tells. I think it's masterfully put together um masterfully acted and uh just a, a a beautiful story that is something that feels as relevant um to you know i think to audiences and to all ages as it does to anyone who just loves to uh loves a good story and loves to you know think critically about film i think there's a lot of stuff in here um that's really worth digging into so yeah just man i'm i was I have to thank you, Josh, because it really was really refreshing to watch this again and really kind of solidify my opinion about it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. What do you guys think? Do you think that uh, do you think that the criticism that this film has received that it's like too sentimental or it's not a realistic portrayal of a small town? Do you think that those are apt criticisms? <laughs> it should be more real and raw and gritty. Yeah, you know, there's the dark and gritty reboot of, of It's a Wonderful Life. That's what we need in today's yeah. day and age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and we just got the dark and gritty reboot of Perry Mason over the summer. So, you know, it's time there is you now. Go. Yeah. And that uh, <laughs> he could, uh, what's his, um, uh, Matthew Reese could totally play a dark and gritty Jimmy Stewart. I could totally see that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that uh, no, something. I mean, we had. I think we had the dark and gritty reboot of It's a Wonderful Life, and it's called Forrest Gump. Oh and no! It's still pretty charming. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. That was that was something that I wanted to ask you guys about. I, you didn't get that vibe, a Forrest Gump vibe from this, like in a way. Like I think that this is a better movie than Forrest Gump is. Um, but it, the parallels just kept coming up for me. Like it just felt like what what everybody loves about Forrest Gump and less and less as the people who watch it get um, younger and younger um, is the whole kind of like traveling through American history with this, the protagonist who's mm. so lovable. Um, and this movie totally has that, in t- that same arc where like you start out with uh, George Bailey as a small child uh, around like the turn of the century and you follow him over the course of his like 35 years of life uh, as all of these like major events of American history happen to him through the prism of this small town that he lives in. And that felt very similar to the sort of like Forrest Gump globe trotting through history uh, <laughs> aspect of, of the movie Forrest Gump. Did, did that like jump out to you at all? I had no idea that that was kind of the arc of this movie. When I watched it, I knew that it was going to be a lot about George Bailey's life. Um, but I didn't quite realize that it was going to be so much about 
this sort of idealized, nostalgic look at America's past as of 19, late 1940s. That is an interesting reading that I've never picked up on. But I do see the parallels now that you mention it, um, with the way that it goes through uh, George Bailey's life in the same way that Forrest Gump is really a from birth through adulthood look at um, Forrest Gump's life. Um, and then, like you said, all the different historical landmarks within it. Um, that is a, a very interesting comparison that I would not have thought of. Um, <laughs> but going to, to your question, Justin, about you know if it's too sentimental or, or saccharine, I I hate those complaints about films <laughs> or anything. I just that feels like such a a jaded response to art and culture. Like if it's not you know my perception of the world, then it has to be pessimistic or realistic or it has to be gritty and and down to earth then it's not valid and i think that is uh, it's it's so much the zack snyderfication of like <laughs> movie criticism and i hate it because there's nothing wrong with with saccharine and there's nothing wrong with optimistic and there's nothing wrong with you know emotionally earnest filmmaking or art <laughs> and i think to use that as a criticism really just points out to, I know, the general uh, almost misanthropic point of view of whoever's saying that. <laughs> well, I totally agree. And I also think that the, that really just makes the entire movie about the last five minutes, basically. Like it's the entire mm. rest of the film is this kind of like slow like beating down of poor George Bailey as he continues to kind of like go through life, putting other people's needs ahead of his and constantly sacrificing what his wants and his desires are. And you see the toll that that takes on him. And you see the way that the yeah. world is really rough. Like he is a very good and earnest person in the world, but the world often kind of takes advantage of that. And he is lesser for it for the majority of this runtime. And then you find, and then what Capra does is, he gives this this release to the audience to say like no if you do a, if you have a good life like George Bailey has like you will have uh you will get something meaningful out of it and in this case you know to spoil a movie that's like uh, extremely old and everyone but me <laughs> has seen um <laughs> in this case it's you know the townspeople coming together and literally helping pay to solve his problem but really what that is, is about like having a community that values you and and cares about you. And that's what he's saying is that like if you do all of these things, that is the reward that you get. And yes, that is very idealized and sentimental and unfortunately not always true in real life. But the whole rest of the film is really dark and really bleak and really upsetting. And George Bailey is is in some ways an idealized figure in that he his motives are always pure but he is very angry and resentful in this film oh, also yeah. mm -hmm. and, and very dissatisfied. He, his, he lets his better angels win out every time, but that devil is on his shoulder and it's poking him real hard for various parts of this movie. So it just seems like a total misrepresentation of the film to cast it as this super idealized, sincere, sweet, saccharine film. It just, it's so much more than that. There's so much more complexity to it and so much more realism in there even if we get that relief at the end, which I think is nice. I think it's nice to have that kind of to go out sometimes on an aspirational note. Um, that doesn't mean that you should just throw everything out that you're, that the filmmakers are trying to present though. 
Yeah, and I think you, you've touched upon something. Like one of the reasons why the film has meant so much to me um, is because, like, because of that resentment and frustration that you're talking about. I think it's so easy for us to. I mean, it, it's fascinating to think about this film after seeing something like Paddington Two, which is a movie that you know you and I both loved, and George loved, of course, when we talked about it on here. And I, this is not to slight that movie at all, but um, it's similar to me in the fact that these are two, these are with Paddington and with George Bailey, these are people who seek to do good for other people um, to the point where it's like, it's so inherent to who they are um, that to do otherwise would be opposite to who they are. They, they couldn't do it if they tried basically. Um, but what, what I love about it's a wonderful life that I think that maybe we don't see as much in Paddington is that, you see that making these sacrifice, like he has to make sacrifices. He has to do things in, in being selfless and helping other people. He is um, losing things and he is not always giving himself the room to grieve for those losses. Uh, and that does build up a lot of that resentment, a lot of that frustration. I just, I, I think it, it's something that's very specific. I think there are people who, who do that kind of thing, who, um, who are selfless, who do make sacrifices, but it doesn't, and they can do them with like knowing that they are the right thing and knowing that they wouldn't make any other choice otherwise, but it doesn't mean there isn't that frustration. It doesn't mean that there isn't that sacrifice. There aren't those dreams that they don't, um, you know, that they don't think about. Um, and I just feel like this movie captures that, that feeling, that, that conflict so well. And it, it just, to me, like, like, if you are going to level that criticism about it being sentimental, I think you need to at least get into the weeds with this movie as it's trying to acknowledge the toll that it does take on, uh, on a person. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's I, especially telling when you see that, that, that he's George comes so close to um, Alex, like you said, like giving into that like devil on his shoulder so many times, whether it's taking the deal that Potter gives him or, um, you know, just, you know, just giving everything up. And it's really only to the end that you see him really give into that temptation. But even then it's, he's such an earnestly good person that he, he would consider suicide before hurting the people he loves. Yeah. And, and I, I also, I love the fact that he never, at least, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember he, him ever, um, saying that he's going to go to jail in place of uncle billy but that's very much the expectation that he is placed on himself um and i just love that it's not acknowledged that it's just he has he has already decided that's the way it's going to be and that just speaks to his his character and what he's willing to give up even as it drives him to despair he does have that one outburst at Uncle Billy right at the oh, yeah. right as like that moment is kind of like crescendoing before he goes home where he literally says, like, I'm not going to go to jail because of you, you silly old man. Yes. Um, but then he immediately inter- like he immediately rejects that and just is mm-hmm. like, it's not even a question immediately thereafter, like that he's the one who's going to be going to jail if this comes yeah. to it. You know, like it's just it's his responsibility and he's taking that on and it's not even like he allows himself to have that outburst in that moment. And then he, and then it just like immediately goes away and he's just, (laughs) it's just not a question as to who's going to go down for this. It's going to be him. And that is very, it's, it's very sad to think about. Um, I also, (laughs) when we're talking about like George Bailey being this perfect person, 
it is notable too that he's he's not always his best self in this no. movie. Like he <laughs> no, he treats he treats he treats poor Mary pretty crappily for like a good portion of the screen time that we see her at least. The implication is is that like they have a very loving relationship outside of what we see, but in the scenes that they have, he's like kind of a dick to her. Set, like when they're when he's initially courting her, and then when he when he co- comes when she comes back from college, uh, and it feels like everything is pushing him to be with her so that we can settle down in this place. And he just so doesn't want to be tied down. He takes out that frustration on her yeah. really at no fault of her own at all. And like probably mm-hmm. one of the ugliest he is in the whole film. Um, and it's, it's very interesting from like a gender politics perspective where it's just like, yeah, well, Mary is a good girl. And so she's just going to take that abuse because she knows that he's really a good person inside. And so she's, it's almost like a sign of, of the depths of their love that he gets to be his ugliest self to marry. Um, and I think that that is interesting. I think that um, if a modern film presented it in exactly this way, it might have a bit of a, a more abusive quality. Like we might read that more as emotionally abusive than I think we're meant to in this film. Um, but I do think that there is some truth to that, at least that, you are oftentimes your worst self to the person you love the most, because that's where you can kind of like let your guard down and really let out that frustration that the rest of the world is, is pushing on you. And I think that it's just, it again speaks to how emotionally honest this film is about the toll that living a life that is so idealized has on an actual human being. That's just not something that, I feel like it's part of the discourse around this film and it was very shocking to me Um, and in a very powerful way. Like I think it makes the film significantly more effective than it otherwise would have been. I mean, yeah, it strikes me as something that's fundamental to what it's about. And I just, yeah, I I just think, I think that was why when I, when I saw this as an older person and realized that that was such a huge part of the movie that I was like, wait, the reputation this film has, I was not led to believe would <laughs> would portray this aspect, this ugly aspect of this of this character. Um, yeah, I guess also the other another thing I wanted to to bring up just on this uh, viewing that I'm curious about what you guys think. Um, the way that George talks about a lot of his dreams, um, my memory of it was that it was a lot more sort of abstract that he was just going to kind of go exploring was going to do something big with his life but he does get into some specifics a little bit with architecture and um you know sort of this idea of doing good for the world at large apart from just his community but the other thing that i realized watching it this time was that those dreams there are times where in his present moment he recognizes that his dreams are right in front of him um, not least of when he's looking at Mary. <laughs> and, in fact, almost every, well, not every scene, but but many, many scenes. Um, and that was really, I think there's a couple of moments. There's actually a moment when after they've, um, after they've been at the dance and taken a bit of a swim uh, and they're strolling down the lane, <laughs> when he looks at her and it's, it's not that he hasn't been into her up to that point, but he really is seeing her for the first time and I forgot just how emotionally satisfying it was to see him like 
really recognizing what he wanted from his life and that that thing was not necessarily something that was outside his community, but was right there in front of him. And I think there's a lot of moments like that in this movie. That example you had there, Justin, is is, is a perfect one because you you see that's where the, the famous uh, Lasso the Moon um, line comes from in mm-hmm. the idea that he is after, you know, everything that he's been talking about for the first um, you know, 20, 30 minutes of the movie, he's like, okay, I am all of a sudden willing to, you know, put everything aside and just stick with Mary. And if it wasn't for the, uh, the man on the porch to interrupt them by just telling <laughs> them to, to kiss, um, you know, it's like, what, well, what would George have done from there? And then if it wasn't for, um, you know, George's father dying, um, or having a heart attack, like what would, um, the trajectory of their relationship been? Um, and so there are so many times when this is a a battle for what George believes in and what George um, knows to be right and what he wants. Um, and, and sometimes it is a matter of admitting, oh, I do, this is really what I want. And that's why that scene where he and Mary, um, the, the courting when she has the, the painting of him and she's playing the, the song <laughs> that they were singing, where it is. You know, it is very aggressive and it is very um, a very ugly side of George. And it's a very difficult scene to watch. But that's where you really see all of that come boiling up where George is like, I have to put aside what I think my life was going to be and accept that this is what my life is. And, you know, this will make me happy, even if it's not what I envisioned for myself. Yeah, I think that that it's that scene is the sort of thing that like it can only exist in a movie right because that scene has an entire arc to it like he he starts out being like i like i don't want to admit to myself that i'm interested in this girl because of what it means and then he goes there and he actually sees her and is confronted with it and it's so strong that he feels like he has to reject it or else he'll be stuck in this town forever and then over the course of that conversation he like lets all of that frustration and all of that anxiety out on her and then realizes how much he hates seeing her so upset over this and how much he really loves her. And then he just, by the end is just fully committed to her. And that's just like, a, it's just, it could be like a, a one scene play almost like it's just, you have a whole character arc in that one scene in a really spectacular way. Um, and that, and that is of course an example of this movie, not necessarily being grounded in realism, but it feels emotionally real. It feels a lot yeah. like another weird comparison is sort of like, the, if you guys remember the Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs movie from a few years ago, um, <laughs> <laughs> where like that, sure. a lot of people criticized that movie for not reflecting reality. Right. But the whole project of that film was to say, like, OK, let's take everything that we know about this guy's life and turn it into like basically three set pieces um, at the various stages of his life. And so it has like this very theatrical quality to it. And I think that a scene like that in this movie also works the exact same way. It feels much more like a play. It has that theatricality to it where you're expressing so much. You're expressing a whole arc that would have played out over weeks, if not months, between these two people in this single concentrated span of time. But it works so well because the actors are so grounded and so emotionally engaged while in this sort of heightened universe of the theatricality of the film. And it really just, it's just so striking, I think, that I think this movie's reputation is buoyed by the fact that uh, 
Jimmy Stewart is just an incredibly charming, charismatic person who you want to root for. So no matter how ugly he gets in this movie, you know that George Bailey is a good person at heart. And you just like Jimmy Stewart so much that you just kind of like forgive all of the bad, ugly, like dark, conflicted parts of him because you just you just want to root for him. And I think that that's why then this movie gets the reputation that it does. It's more about the effects that it has on the audience than actually what is truly there on screen. And I found that tension throughout the whole film. And I found that very interesting to observe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I I don't know what kind of reputation, (laughs) uh, I don't know what kind of reputation Jimmy Stewart has among people like, I don't know, our age. Like I know that, you know, I think for a lot of, uh, a lot of, like, there was a reason why he was a, you know, one of the most venerated actors of his generation. And I, I guess I just feel like every time I see him, like, he's just so authentic and he's just so good at, like, he's, he's not necessarily, I, I wouldn't say he's the kind of actor who disappears into a role. Like, he is kind of playing a modification of his, of himself in a lot of things and yet he's just so emotionally truthful in that person that I just can't help but but yeah kind of like fall in love with him <laughs> just just want to root for him just want to see him succeed I mean that's true in this movie and you know all the Hitchcocks you know every, the Anthony Mann movies like he's just he's someone you just um you just get a sense of like this person is completely genuine and authentic um, and doesn't appear to be pretending or even even acting like he's just so true. Um, so, yeah. So one of my favorite actors, probably in general, but uh, but certainly uh, of his era as well. Yeah, well, I'm like Hitchcock would always say uh, that he liked to cast Jimmy Stewart in his roles because he was like, he saw him as like the everyman American. And he was just a person who everyone just loved and wanted to root for and could see themselves as. And that is why he would put him in roles like Vertigo or like Rear Window, where the guy is kind of a dick and like kind of maybe even arguably villainous and easily able to be judged by the audience, especially at that time, if not as much today where we're more familiar with the anti-hero kind of mentality but because it's jimmy stewart you automatically want to root for him and you can feel it as you being put in this situation and it just creates this whole other element of the film that lets you buy into the world without judging that character and i think that that's on display here as george bailey as well like you never judge him for his outbursts because he just you know that this is so hard for him and you know that like that like this explosion of frustration that he has at various points in the movie is so well earned because he's put his entire life on hold time and time and time again, sacrifice everything that he ever thought that he wanted, even if it's not necessarily what he ends up wanting. Um, And I think we can all relate to that in our own lives. I mean, some people more than others, but everyone has had to make sacrifices to be part of a family and to be part of a community and to and no one has been able to just or most people at least have not been uh, blessed enough to just kind of pursue every interest and every desire that they had um, without any consideration for other people and other people's circumstances. And so I think we can all relate to that. 
And that's why this movie, I think, hits so hard when it finally gets to where it goes. Um, and, I, and I guess we should probably start talking about uh, the character of Clarence at some point, because he kind of like makes the movie, <laughs> even though he comes in uh, kind of late. Uh, and it was interesting to note Clarence, played by Henry Travers, who's a, an acclaimed actor for like 30 years. This ended up being one of his last roles and is easily his most iconic. And he's just so wonderful. I mean, he's definitely peppered throughout the film as a voice who uh, Joseph is talking to. Um, <laughs> but and that whole thing, by the way, I did not know that that was part of the movie at all. That's like super wild to see just like a bunch of like nebulas talking to each other at various times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's like, like even though I've seen it so many times, it still struck me as strange this time. <laughs> Yeah, it's just very wild. I just thought it was like, oh yeah, the angel comes, but it's it's not that at all. Um, and yeah, I think that he's just so his he just has this kind of like again, and this is everybody in this movie. You just immediately want to root for Clarence. He just seems yeah. so like unpresuming and just like nice and a little bit bumbling, but in an affectionate sort of way. Uh, and you and it's just a perfect kind of comedy duo uh for a lot of those scenes because <laughs> yeah. george is just so at his wit's end that he is just not and and clarence is just there just being like a smiley happy guy being like no that's not what we're gonna do we're gonna do this <laughs> just like and it's just it works so well on a comedic level yes clarence is so innocent and i think the 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 best um scene to talk about that um that comedy pairing is when they go to the bar and Clarence is trying to figure out what drink he wants. He's <laughs> like, ah, uh, it's a flaming rum puncher. He's just like bumbling, but so sweet. And George is like, I don't know what to do with this guy, man. This is this is wild. I don't know what's going on. And like, you need him to be that sweet and innocent because it constantly forces George to kind of access that that better part of himself, right? Like he's so in the moment wanting to just pity himself and be frustrated and be angry and he has good reason to feel that way and he just wants to rage against the world and against himself and Clarence is just there as like this super sweet innocent guy who like George needs to take care of otherwise uh he's gonna end up getting beaten up by these random guys at the bar or like getting attacked <laughs> by the police officers or something you know like he got and it's also this great so it it serves this twin need that the story really needs at that moment where it, like it forces the audience to, to remember why you care about george because george is constantly like he's just on the edge of telling clarence to go like screw off but he can't because he just he knows that he needs to protect this guy um, even though, of course, Clarence is the one protecting him. And then it also provides this really nice contrast to like where how the world has degraded without George being there. So that way, like the world outside of them keeps reacting to uh to Clarence in such a negative way, such a mean way. And you're just like, no, but he's so nice. Why is everybody so mean so <laughs> And like you can't have that with George because George is like really angry in this moment. So he's not gonna be the nice guy that the world is being mean to and beating on. So you need that nice guy there. And so Clarence fills that role too. And I think that that's just like such efficient screenwriting uh that I was really impressed with. Yeah, and he's so free of deceit or irony. I mean, everything he says, he just says, like, he is straight up with him about why he's there, what he's there to do. And I think it just, and the funniest thing is, like, 
you know, at this point, George Bailey is just not in his right mind to, to, to really listen to any of that, to care about <laughs> any of that. And it's just that, like, so that tension that they set up is, is really, um, is really effective because then you get to see it kind of break down a little bit, especially as George starts to realize, like, oh yes, this as, this is actually happening. I am actually seeing what life would be like without me. I am at least coming to terms with my current reality. Um, you know, both literally and figuratively. So it just, that tension is so true to the character, but also true to how, like how he serves the story. Um, it's just a really, yeah, it's, it's a really wonderful performance. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with there's, I think there's one other movie I've seen Henry Travers in and he was quite delightful in that movie. It's a movie called Mrs. Miniver. I don't know if either of you are familiar with that. Um, it was a best picture winner from the forties, but anyway, um <laughs> i've not seen it but i've heard it because it won best picture so it's yeah. on those lists um he's not quite as like uh sort of uh he's not quite as uh what's the word i'm looking for uh sort of like uh buoyant <laughs> i guess as he is here <laughs> but he is uh just as delightful so um really really wonderful actor He's a he's an incredible an incredibly affable fellow in this movie. Yes, he is. Really. Mm-hmm. And it's it's <laughs> interesting to, to see him. Oh, go ahead, Alex. Oh, I was just gonna say I wanted to ask you guys like so in this part of the movie it takes George like a long time to really accept what has happened that he is transported to this other reality where he no longer mm-hmm. exists. And now to be fair to George, that's an insane thing that no one in the history of the world has obviously ever experienced. Um, <laughs> and it happens like. It's just because, like, Clarence is just like, all right, you don't exist now, and, like, nothing else changes, so it's, like, super, I get that it would be hard to just, like, wrap your head around that, but I feel like it takes him a long time. Do you think that it would take you guys that long to fig- to realize that what Clarence is saying is true? <laughs> like, obviously, as an audience member, you're kind of, like, biased to buy into Clarence because, like, you know that's kind of the pitch of the movie, right? So you're like, yeah, of course, like, why don't you get it? Like, he says that you don't exist anymore. So you don't exist anymore. But then if you're just like, wait, that's insane. So sure. It might take a little bit of time to adjust, but um, how do you guys, like, do you think that it would take you guys that long? And like, are you okay with it taking George as long as it takes? I think that it definitely takes him a long time. And I'd like to think <laughs> that it would not take me as long um, as wild the premises that is. But I think that level of skepticism plays its purpose so that you have the real gut punch of when he gets to his brother's grave um, to realize like, Oh shoot. Like everything Clarence has said was true. And I have, you know, messed things up completely just by that one, you know, loose um, comments about wishing I was never born. So it, it does take forever, but I think there's the, the really payoff for it there. And, and then right after that, when he sees Mary and he sees how different her life is. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's part of it might be to pay off. Uh, I, I think because the film sets up that this is an alternate reality where he hasn't had this effect on all the townspeople, you kind of want to see what all the townspeople are like. So there's so many people in this community. So it kind of he needs I think it needs to give him time to. Um, encounter all of those people. So I think that's a part of it. But I also think it gives him the chance to say the kinds of things like by, by, by continually, um, by continually 
reckoning with reality as he understands it versus what he's seeing in front of him, he's coming to terms with how much he has meant to these people. What his um, his existence and the person that he is and the effect that he's had on others, um, how that has it's almost like a way of him reminding himself of how much he matters to their lives in order for them to be this thing that he purports them to be, even though what he is seeing is the opposite of that, if that makes any sense. So it's almost like Clarence giving him that chance to um, remind himself of how much he's meant to these people. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's in contrast is, is where you can see the effect the strongest, right? So that makes yeah. total sense. I do. I have to quibble a little bit, though. Mary was all set up to marry the plastic guy before George came around and, and like, reminded <laughs> her that she still loved him. And it's yeah. like, if George wasn't there, I feel like she would have married the plastic guy. And, like, that guy was obnoxious, but he was, like, a nice guy at heart. And I think she would have had, like, a great life being rich, married to, like, a kind of obnoxious guy who is, like, decent at the end of the day. <laughs> I, like, I, I feel like they kind of sell her out a little bit. Like, I don't think she would have been <laughs> Me stuck working at the library. She she had a lot of options if it wasn't for George. She might not have been as happy, but I think she would have had an okay life. I I think that's yeah. the part of the movie that I find um, maybe one of the parts that I I like to make fun of a little bit, just because it's like the worst thing that happens. To Mary is she works at the library and has glasses. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> right, and, like, reasons, and, I, and the and the sort of like grim foreboding tone that that. That Clarence adopts to tell him what happened to Mary. I'm just like, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Also, that idea of if you put glasses on someone, suddenly they're not like the most gorgeous person you've ever seen. Like Donna Reed is still mm-hmm. beautiful. <laughs> it's like glasses and a hair change are not going to, you know, make a difference for that. So yeah, that <laughs> that is not the most believable um, difference. But I will say that Donna Reed's performance in this, I think, is is really incredible, and I think. For a lesser actress, it wouldn't feel genuine to see someone put up with all of George's crap, but mm. to see the way Donna Reed looks at him, like some of those looks, like you don't even need dialogue. Like she just yeah. really shows this this fondness for him that I it's incredible. Yeah, totally. I couldn't have said it better. Like there's just such warmth and affection for him in her eyes. And when even when he's being awful to her at the house with the kids, when he's really just had it, mm-hmm. like she you never lose track of the fact that she's so concerned about him because this is so out of character. And you really need that in that moment to just to not turn on George because he's being pretty monstrous to her and the kids on Christmas Eve of all times. And he's going through a lot. Sure. But like to be that awful to everybody and you need her there to show with her concern, with her eyes, with her, with her words, how, how out of character this is, how deeply concerning this is. This isn't just a slow kind of like devolution into a man who is kind of done with the world. This is a a shocking turn of events because this is so not who he is. And she, like, we know that a little bit from the movie that we've saw up to that point, but she conveys so much of that just out of the concern that she has. Even when she ultimately feels so betrayed by him that she tells him to leave, it's like it's fully heartbreaking. And so you could tell that she never lets go of that concern. And it almost seems like yeah. in that moment she immediately regrets telling him to go because she knows that like only bad things are going to happen from there because she still is so concerned about him. So I think that that is 
you're correct. That is very tricky to play and very necessary to the film. And she does just an excellent, excellent job. And I think it's clear, like her, her spirit is very similar to, to George, just in, in, even though she's someone who um, is happy to be where she is, I think a lot of her spirit and a lot of her striving to me speaks to a lot of the things that, that George himself wants. And I think you can see why they're, why they're together more than just the fact that, um, you know, that maybe his, his mom wants him to, <laughs> to be with her. It's a lot deeper and uh, a lot more, um, um, you know, I just, uh, just, I, I can't get over just the, some of these scenes between the two of them, like the desire between them is like off the charts. Like it is, it is just, there are scenes in this film where they're just looking at each other, like, like the scene where they're, Sam Wainwright's on the phone and he's talking about plastics and it's cool like they don't give a crap about any of that they're just like they're just like all they want to do is make out with one another and uh and eventually they do and uh yeah so <laughs> while he's still on the phone no less <laughs> yes. they never hang up on him he just kind of dropped the phone <laughs> it was a pretty clear message that she was no longer interested Yes. Yeah. But but Justin, going to your point of um, how Mary has that same spirit, I think that's shown perfectly in the the scene where the, there's the run on the bank and she just burst in there to the the building alone and like has all their money for their honeymoon and just gives it all away. And that is one of those moments where you really get that. Okay, George is is selfless, but Mary's kind of the the MVP of this, where things fall apart without her. Um, and then after that, that uh, the scene where he goes to the the rundown house where they were throwing stones and Mary has got all set up with dinner made. And then um, the cop and taxi driver, they're singing and everything set up. Oh, that is the most romantic thing I think I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. Well, and just like, she loves that broken down old house. And that, that is like, that is such a, a great like placeholder for like how much she loves George. Like in a lot of ways, George is the broken down old house. Like the, the, <laughs> the town is the broken down old house. Like everything is the broken down old house. You know what I mean? Like that's, there's a lot of symbolism to it there. Um, and the fact that she loves it so much that she doesn't even want to break the window for her wish mm-hmm. is just, I mean, that's the whole movie right there, right? Like you don't want to break the window of the old broken down old house even if it makes your wish come true because there's something of value to it still and something beautiful that you need to protect and foster and nurture. Like that's the whole film. Yeah. And I, I love how that scene really leans into a lot of the, the more rundown qualities of the house. Like it's very clear that, you know, there's only so much fixing up that they could do, especially on short notice. But I think the I think the filmmaking also just really leans into that and really does um, use the sort of more elegant shadows in this house as like part of this um, as like part of this romantic tone. And it just it just really does. um, It really becomes this, you know, it might not be the honeymoon that they wanted, but in its own right, it becomes this beautiful thing that I think is just as satisfying as any um as any of their plans might have been so it's just yeah it's a really wonderful scene the only thing the only thing that could have made that scene more beautiful in my opinion is if Bert and Ernie kissed on the lips but you know you can't have everything is this where the canonical Bert and Ernie come from are they named after the it's a wonderful life characters I think so I'm, I believe I'm so. pretty sure 
this is something that I never knew. Yeah, fun trivia. Yeah, my uh, my my dad, who uh, this this film is his favorite film of all time. He was he's very fond of telling me this fact, um, you know, over the years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, you know, within the same day, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> perfect. It's a perfect dad trivia fact. So that's that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, should we get to the ending of this movie, like the way that it all comes together? Well, sure. I, I feel like we need to talk about Mr. Potter first. Oh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> like, what what were you guys' thoughts on Lionel Barrymore, who, once again, like, very famous actor and completely, you know, bonkers Hollywood lineage, uh, but Lionel Barrymore. What did you guys think of him as Mr. Potter? He's just fantastic. <laughs> he's just the most miserable bastard you've ever met in just such a charming way. Like, he's just excellent. He's exactly what this movie needs. Like, it's, he's... He's believably mean and miserly enough to just have like a great foil for the Baileys, um, but never so cruel as to just break the tone of the movie. Right. Like it, it, it walks that line where he's he's comical and he's funny, but he's also terrible and believably terrible. And it's just it's a great arch performance that I really liked. And I think that there's been like generations of mean rich guy roles that have been inspired by this and. Uh, very few come close to to nailing it as as well as the uh, the great Lionel Barrymore did. Yeah, I mean, I just remember uh, seeing this for the first time and just being like, "Wow, I already hate this character. I hope we don't have to experience a lot of him." And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, too bad for me. But no, I, I I love his performance here. I I love even in the small moments, like one of my favorite recurring bits is with his just how annoyed he gets with his servant for not like hurrying fast enough for his liking like not getting him to like not wheeling him to the door fast enough he's just like he's just relentless <laughs> um and it's and it's also just funny to me to think about um i don't know are, are you familiar with the film called you can't take it with you heard of it uh i'm not the film but the phrase i certainly have <laughs> okay um, so also a Best Picture winner from 1938, uh, also directed by Frank Capra, uh, also starring Jimmy Stewart and Lionel Barrymore, but Barrymore playing basically the opposite of Mr. Potter. Like he plays this kindly old man who, um, with his, uh, with his fortune is basically enabling people to pursue their dreams, uh, with his funds. And like allowing and like offering them like room and board, like he's just the complete opposite of how he is here. And I think seeing that performance just made me appreciate this performance even more because they're just on such opposite sides of the spectrum. Um, so yeah, just just a big fan, uh, a big fan of him here. And, and um, I don't know, every like it's almost like he has like that sneer is just like permanently like fixed in his face <laughs> <laughs> just for, for every scene. Well, except for that one scene where he's trying to, there's the two times that he tries to woo George and tries to get yes. over on him, where he yes. where he puts on his nice guy act, and it's just mm-hmm. so it's sure, obviously sure. so heightened. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so heightened and theatrical in a way, but it just like it, it's so great because each time it's just like Jimmy Stewart just like, hey, wait a minute, and then he just like, <laughs> and starts screaming at him. <laughs> Yeah. It's like Lucy with the football, only George doesn't take the bait. Like it's just it's great. He <laughs> it's a very comedically fun performance that Barrymore does. 
Yeah, I remember him being listed as one of the the greatest villains um, from the American Film Institute. And at first, I was like, would I really put him up there with Darth Vader? It's like, yeah, yeah, I would. He's he's a slime <laughs> ball. Um, but he has that such amazing foil uh, with George. Even when George is a kid, like when um, the the child playing George like comes into like is defending his dad and like just pushes him. It's like, whoa, like like Mr. Potter is is the worst, but in the best way possible. Yeah, I like absolutely. Now I just wish I could see Lionel Barrymore playing the Emperor in Star Wars. Like, imagine if we had gotten oh, oh. that. Wow. But you guys wanted to go into the ending, right? So the uh, the reveal or <laughs> yeah. where they get their real emotional payoff, I guess. Yeah, sure. So like, I want to know, like, like everybody cried, right? When it when you realized that the community was coming to save him with with the money, like that's just it's such a it's such a beautiful moment to see the community rally around him like that um and then like even after they get the telegram that sam is has been has agreed to pay way more than what they even need the town people are still giving like as much money as they can afford to give to Mm -hmm. help george and it's just it's just so incredibly moving especially like during the year that we've had where it's oftentimes felt very difficult to believe in community. Um, we've seen some inspiring acts during the coronavirus uh, era that we're living through um, and some incredible moments of sacrifice and selflessness. But we've seen a lot of the other side of being part of a community as well, where people are just refusing to put their own immediate needs uh, aside to help the greater good. And so to see a community come together and reward this man who has done so much for so many was just really, really powerful and moving in the exact way that Capra wants to be. It feels aspirational. It feels incredibly powerful and satisfying. Um, and I don't care if it's kind of corny or hokey or whatever. It's just beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, it, it always gets me to cry. There, there are two scenes um, that always make me cry. It's, it's this final one, and the scene where um, young George prevents old man Gower from poisoning someone. Yeah. Um, those two always hit me so hard. But this last one, yeah, because it has that, it is aspirational, but it is, like, it, it doesn't try to um, paint a, like, an unrealistic picture. It tries, it, it's, yeah. in some ways, it's a call to action to show you, like, this is what community can and should be. Um, and if you recognize the impact that you have in other people's lives, this is the kind of community you can build. Um, and how, you know, in, in, in real life, you know, you may never see that impact and you may never see, um, how much the community actually values you. Um, and so if you, with, with Jimmy Stewart being that every man, um, in so many roles, you really feel like, wow, like if, if this happened to me, like, and my community came towards me for that. Like, it's just, it's overwhelming to think how much good he does and how rewarded he is for it after all that he's been through. Yeah. And it's basically like a, it's a little bit like a socialist manifesto, this movie, if you really think about it, because it's like rich people are evil and terrible and awful and only care about money and will let all poor people suffer just to get more of it. And uh, if the community rallies together and and gives what they can to help each other, then everything is much better off. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently the FBI caught that too and wrote a little thing <laughs> yes. about it. Oh really? I didn't yes, know that. They did. <laughs> yeah, in, in 1947 the FBI wrote a memo saying that um, Lionel Barrymore's character is pretty much a 
uh, a criticism of capitalism. I mean, Which, yes, right? Like, that's yeah. pretty obviously true. <laughs> and that's why the film makes him pay. That makes him suffer for every... Oh, wait, no, it doesn't. He's <laughs> he's still there. <laughs> he is, but they don't need him. That's the whole thing. Like, they've yeah. created a world where they, they don't need him, and that's and it's so empowering. Instead of the world we live in, where Mr. Potter became president, but that's for another day. Uh. <laughs> I did think about that watching this movie, but I was also like, I don't know, there's just, I just feel like there's a craftiness to Mr. Potter that I'm just not sure exists in our current president. (laughs) There's a level of intelligence there, like, obviously there's cruelty and sociopathy, but also, like, you know, some level of intelligence, so. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if that makes me more hopeful, or, (laughs) but. I love how it's paced. Like, it's just one thing after another. Like, I, I really do, and I think when... Um, Noah and I, a while ago, we did a mini episode talking about Christmas movies, and he brought up this film. I, I think I may have said something similar to this, but I just, you can really see all the experience that Capra has as director of screwball comedy, because it's just all over this movie. And, and it works so well for the story that he's telling. But I think especially that last scene where it's just like one thing after another, like it, like you can't, like one person will, like, it won't be one person putting down their money before another person is right there. And it's like, you can't even, like, get your bearings. And it's just so good at capturing that sort of overwhelming quality, like, the outpouring of this community and just how it can't be contained. And even, like, how it follows from him, like, reuniting with his kids and, like, you know, offering some amount of apology. And then, like, you know, just, and then the way he just, like, starts, ki- like, to the, the way he starts kissing Mary to the point where she's like, okay, this is maybe a little much, George. Like, <laughs> you know um it's just it's just all there and it's just all happening and it's just like there's so many moving parts that he has to coordinate and i just think it it works so beautifully to the point where and and then when you get that moment where his brother toasts him when all the every other sound just stops and it's only harry's voice and the thing that harry says when i didn't realize this until this viewing the thing that harry says is something that George says to his own father earlier in the movie, the richest man oh, in town. Okay. Mm. And yeah. that really, that really hit me <laughs> when he said that. Uh, so yeah, I just think, I think it's really well done. I think it, it illustrates a lot of what the movie was able to do up to that point. And um, yeah, and just really reflect, it really just reflects that moment and how it must feel emotionally. And um, you know, yeah, it's a lot of sincerity. It's a lot of earnestness. And if it's earned, which I feel like it is, then it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you can't lose track of the kind of punishing experience that George has had throughout the film and the frustration of it. Like when you talk about how rewarding that ending is, like yeah. the like Capra puts us as an audience really through the ringer. By like making us like working us up to the point where we're like, yeah, maybe George should kill himself. Maybe there's no other way out of this situation. And so then when you get to that point and it's like it never occurred to him to ask anyone else for help. And that's just like that's the thing that really hit me hard was just when when all these people are so like willing to just like trip over themselves to help George because he's done so much for them. It really, like, it just, it registers. Like, he never even thought to ask because he would never want to make anyone else's problem, his problem, anyone else's problem, even though he's helped so many people with their own problems. 
and there's a way where that could be kind of like uh off-putting like where it's just like you're like he's like hanging himself up on the cross and just like being having like a martyr complex but there's none of that in his character at all it's just it's just selflessness in a way that's just really it just it underscores everything that we've seen before and and it just really that really hit me hard that that realization which is obviously you know we see we get so at least me speaking from my experience of watching the film like i got so caught up in the tragedy of what was happening to him and his own experience of it that it never occurred to me that he should just ask for help because it was just like no like how so i was right there with him and then to realize that oh yeah like all of these people love him like they'll help him they'll help solve this problem for him if they can it just really that was just really emotional for me and i really really appreciated that because i think that if you are someone like george you do have a tendency to put things like to carry those burdens yourself and not want to shoulder other people to shoulder it for you um because you know how hard the lives of the people around you are and so you want to uh not not weigh them down with your own problems even if you are also the first one to take on other people's problems and and that was that's just that's just what's special about George. And that's what I think I can relate to. And I think a lot of people in my life would probably be able to relate to a person like George. And, um, and that's what makes it just extra moving when you see it finally pay off in a way that he never wanted it or expected it to, you know? Yeah. And then Clarence gets his wings. Yeah. And, and did you notice that it's something like, uh, the thing that Zuzu says about a bell ringing, every, every time a bell rings, Zeno gets his wings, which of course is said by Clarence earlier in the film, she is citing the teacher that Jimmy Stewart... A monster too. Yeah. <laughs> so it even gets to pay that off at the very end. Yeah. She's like, yeah, she is nice, I guess. It really wasn't her fault. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I I do like that part of the movie where, like, he gets punched in the face and then there he realizes who did it. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. He, I deserved it. Yeah, like he yeah. didn't deserve it. That was, he was awful to that woman who was just calling to see if she was okay. And like the way that Mary told the story, like it was not the teacher's fault at all. Like the teacher sent her yeah. off the way she was supposed to. And the little girl just didn't button, like unbuttoned her jacket. So that way the flower didn't get, which is just, you know, the most precious thing. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I just, he deserved to get punched. It's okay. Um, I'm glad that <laughs> he deserved. Let's be real. He deserved to get punched a couple of times throughout this movie. Oh, for sure. But I think it's telling in that that whole um, episode where he's going through and just pretty much tearing down his family. That he has that uh, reprieve where he goes up and he checks on Zuzu. And like you, you see like okay, like the 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 George Bailey that we know and love is still there. It's just he's really just at his wit's end. But even then, just yeah. trying to pretending to to tape the uh or paste the the petals back under her flower, like you, you still have the George there. And I think without that scene, uh, it it would be so easy to give one George. Yeah, it's true. It, it's just little things like that that really help carry you through during the darkness. But um. Yeah, it's it's a really special movie. Thanks, Josh, for letting us watch it. Yeah, I'm so glad you guys enjoyed it. I was uh, somewhat afraid that we were going to watch it and everyone's going to hate it except me. (laughs) (laughs) 
no, never. We're we're all a bunch of sentimental softies here, so you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we're all. I think all three of us are. We're destined to love this movie, um, regardless. Uh, <laughs> um, any any final thoughts on the film? Uh, maybe I'll give the last. I could give the last word to you, Josh, if there's anything else you want to say. Well, uh-huh. I did want to brief. I, I wanted to just shout out Gloria Graham in this movie, who plays Violet. Yeah, who's um, hilarious and like so sweet and just like. She's just playing the town floozy, which was like a stock character back then, which is just wild to think about. But and like <laughs> obviously she's she's only really she's there to like give George one more nice person to be nice to. And she's also really there to just be like, you know, Mary is a virtuous girl. Look at how she's contrasts with her friend Violet. Right. Which is gross and sexist and awful. Mm. But I think Gloria Graham just like gives her so much humanity that like it, you, you can overlook the really gross role that she's playing because she's just so funny and so just like such a full person in her performance and i just really liked her uh, a lot and i've seen and she's this is the second time that i've seen her in a role this year i I watched a movie that came out um about 10 years after this one called human desire which is a fritz lang Mm. noir where she is playing uh, a femme fatale um, and is excellent in it and it's a very different sort of role with a lot less lightness to it um and uh and she's just like, I don't know, I've seen her twice in two very different roles, and I've loved her in both of them. And so I'm, I'm excited to seek out other performances that she's had. Yeah. I mean, her reaction to George's proposition is <laughs> just like, it like makes complete sense. Like, yeah, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. She's like, I can't do that in these shoes. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> it's 10 miles up to there. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's... He, no one raves like a maniac like J- Jimmy Stewart. I swear, oh honestly. gosh, I could go on and on about that. Yeah, because <laughs> he's like you want like any person who would get some of these monologues, you would just be like, okay, right to the uh, psycholo- psychological hospital for you, sir. <laughs> like, <laughs> seven, like stay calm. Someone is coming to help you. <laughs> but with him, it's just like you just like love him so much, and he's so charismatic and just earnest that like. Kind of just like forgive it and he just can just go off like oh man his genuine happiness in the moments when he's running around the town like a like a crazy madman and just like yeah like he is literally like he's verging <laughs> on becoming a looney tune and it's beautiful <laughs> yeah but uh uh josh i did want to give you the final word sure um yeah i i love this movie and i've i've seen it dozens of times and I'm probably going to see it, you know, a hundred times <laughs> throughout my lifetime. And I'm okay with that because each time it, it offers me something new. And I think for, for part of my life, it was about the individual uh, effect of, you know, Jimmy Stewart of, you know, the, the value of sacrifice. And in this viewing, you know, with, or this, this discussion with everything going on this year, it's really about the value of community and, I know this is a Christmas movie, but I would encourage everyone to, to you know, just give it a shot. Watch it a few months early because th- it has the kind of um, the tone and mood that I feel like we could all really use right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, yep. it felt like a, a bomb on my troubled soul watching it. So <laughs> definitely concur. Well, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up there. That seems like three strong recommendations for It's a Wonderful Life. What a crazy concept. 
<laughs> but but uh, let's talk about where we can find everyone these days. Uh, uh, I'll start with you, Josh. Where's the best place to find you? Uh, everyone can find my work on thepopbreak.com um, and also on my Twitter at Josh Necky. But typically on Pop Break, because I am not always great about retweeting things, um, as Alex knows. But I um, recently did a uh, Anniversary Brothers podcast with my brother where we talked about Babe um, for its 25th anniversary. Or no, not 25th. Yeah, 25th anniversary. Yeah. Um, and highly encourage people to check it out. Um, it was a lot of fun and also has a lot of um, the same hopeful vibes that this movie does. So, um, yeah, that's the best place to find me. Excellent. Uh, you can find me on thecinemaverick.com. That is my website. I am also on Letterboxd at The Cinemaverick, which I uh, need to update. But uh, we'll do so. <laughs> and let's close it out with you, Alex. Sure. I just want to say Babe is another movie that I saw this year that made me cry a lot. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so beautiful. They all cheer for him. It's great. Um, but anyway, uh, spoilers for Babe. Um, <laughs> as for me, you can find uh, me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Media Thinkings. Uh, I am the TV editor for PopBreak.com, so you can follow me my stuff over there. Uh, you can also check out Pop Break TV, which is a podcast feed that hosts two of my shows, uh, TV Break, which we do ev- every month with uh, Josh and our friend Bill. And also Goodbye to All That, which is a show that specializes on finales of uh, television seasons and series. Um, you can also follow Cinema Joes at Twitter, um, on Twitter at Cinema Joes, uh, and you can subscribe to us anywhere you get podcasts. Thank you for that. Well, with that, uh, we're going to close it out here. We want to thank all of our listeners and all of our subscribers. But uh, for now, this is Justin for the Cinema Joes signing off. <laughs>